Hey, it's Liz Kelly. One Shiny Podcast will be touring from Friday, November 2nd to Wednesday, November 7th, where Tate, Titus, and nephew Kyle are traveling to Columbus, Ohio, Louisville, Kentucky, Bloomington, Indiana, and Chicago, Illinois to tip off the college basketball season. You can find links to tickets on The Ringer's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Also, be sure to catch up on all of our NBA preview Palooza content from Tuesday, where you can find Bill Simmons, Shea Serrano, Joe House, and more previewing the start of the NBA season. You can check it all out on YouTube. To the fires of forever, we will fly through the heavens. With the power of the universe, we stand strong together. Everybody, sing along. This is the Ringer MLB Show. My name is Michael Baum, and I am a staff writer at the Ringer, joined by staff writer Zach Cram. Zach. Wow, enthusiasm this morning. Dragon Force, man. I'm on my second <laughs> cup of coffee. And Ben Lindbergh. Wow, you are really bringing the enthusiasm today. Oh, my, boy. My, my dog can hear you through my headphones, and she's excited. Uh, that's unfortunate. I'll, I'll try not to <laughs> startle startle the pets. Um, so we know the Red Sox are in the World Series. We do not yet know, as we record on Friday morning, who they're going to face. It will be one of the Milwaukee Brewers or the Los Angeles Dodgers. The Dodgers are up three games to two. Uh, so because there are more games left and you might not listen to this entire podcast in one sitting, we're going to start with the National League and then go back and recap the American League a little bit later in the show. Um, it feels like the best place to start is the Curly Ogden Gambit. This is a great time to be part of a podcast where everybody's obsessed with game seven of the 1924 World Series. <laughs> yeah, this is really kind of right up our alleys. If if you ask me, we all predicted that the ALCS would end in five games. So I don't think we actually got anything wrong. But I know that we definitely called the, the Curly Ogden maneuver, right? Or Zach did. He at least alluded to the possibility. And this is something that we've talked about in the past. And no one's been either bold or desperate or starting pitcher deficient enough to try it. And I think we all like it, right? It was pretty divisive. There were some hot takes. There were people saying it was making a mockery oh, of the game and it was a sham. And I just don't see it that way. There's a long history of this sort of thing in baseball. And it's a it's a clever kind of tactic. And I don't know that the Dodgers fully fell for it. I think they had some inkling that something was up here and they didn't fully give the the lineup that would have given the Brewers the, the advantage once Woodruff came in. But it's a good idea. And we saw the limits to it, too, because it doesn't make you win the game. It just gives you a slightly better chance to win. And unfortunately for the Brewers, you also have to score some runs. I was in the press box during that game and immediately after Wade Miley walked leadoff batter Cody Bellinger and Craig Council came out, everyone in the press box, we started asking like, wait, is he hurt or something? And then we saw Woodruff had already been warming up and was about to come in. And I know there's no cheering in the press box, but it was really hard for me in the moment not to, you know, visibly show my excitement over this happening. Um, I think... It had been planned for a couple days. Craig Council you know, announced that Wade Miley was going to sh- start on short rest. The day before, Wade Miley gave his press conference like he was starting the next day. I asked him, have you ever started on short rest before? Is this a new experience for you? And he kind of laughed and said, I guess this will be a new experience. I'm looking forward to it. And he was in <laughs> on it too. So it was a ruse for multiple days, which I, I think to be audacious enough to pull that off in a 2-2 series in the NLCS is just impressive on the face of it to be able to commit to that bit for so long. My Speaking of committing to the bit, it, I mean, there's talked about the confusion in the press box, watching from home on and seeing Twitter go nuts when Miley came out and it was, what's going on? Is he hurt? And then it was just me and Zach going, holy fuck, it's Bucky Harris. And <laughs> I never felt... I mean, I have felt this alive, but like I rarely <laughs> feel this alive. It was awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, this weirdly, it seemed inconsequential because like you mm-hmm. said, it's not this was not the lineup to do it against. And I guess at this point, you know, if council wasn't comfortable with starting Miley on short rest and just sort of letting it ride, then he was sort of locked into uh, this strategy from the get go. 
Yeah. And we knew they'd have to get creative to get through these three games with the back-to-back-to-back. It's what we talked about coming into this series. How do you do the bullpen game when you have to work your bullpen that hard? And this was one way to do it. In a way, it made it more difficult because then you have to piece together the entire rest of the game with someone other than your starter. But really, Woodruff was the starter in in an all for all intents and purposes. And and he pitched really well. And he yeah, went, he what, five and a third? And and, you know, whether he was helped by the the platoon advantage a little bit, we'll never know, but it can't have hurt, but that just wasn't enough. Yeah, the interesting part about this gambit is not just that it happened, but that it came just like 12 hours after Game 4 ended, and Game 4 went 13 innings, and Gio Gonzalez only lasted an inning in that game because he got hurt. So Milwaukee had exhausted most of their bullpen the day before, and I wonder if... At that point, there was any consideration in Craig Council or the Milwaukee Brain Trust mind. I'm like, should we try this? Because really, where Woodruff ran into trouble was going through the lineup the third time. He got into trouble when he hit you know, Turner, Machado, and Muncie that third time through the order. And if, say, Josh Hader had still been available or Corbin Burns had been able to go longer after pitching two innings the day before, or even like you know, Junior Guerra, who pitched really this, well yeah, in extra innings the day before, say. they might have been able to to piece this together better and make it be successful but as is they kind of lost the thread in the middle innings on on Wednesday yeah the plan was to it would have been all along to sort of exhaust a bullpen unless Gio Gonzalez was going to go more than two innings I mean it this maybe this turns turns out differently I you know Woodruff was fine they he pitched well enough for them to 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 win the game no matter what if they had scored a little bit more, but maybe if you have Freddie Peralta or Junior Guerra available to take that third time through the order off of uh, off his shoulders, this turns out a little differently. Um, ben alluded to the hot takes. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Baseball is sort of a mockery of itself at this point. I, you know, I, I don't know if, if I'm going to clutch my pearls over uh, over the integrity of the game or whatever. You know, and and to to that point directly, like you're doing this to screw with a, a team that platoons a lot and like you shouldn't be protected because you can't hit same, you know, same sided pitching. Like that's a, an obvious core weakness in a, in a player's offensive game and his opponents, uh, you know, entitled to attack that. However, however they see fit. So I, you know, I don't think there's anything cheap or, or Bush league about this, you know, any more than, than any sort of non-traditional uh, strategy is, is cheap or Bush league. I don't think you're under any obligation to just, play an opponent straight up when it's to to your disadvantage um which reminds me of the the ongoing Sam Miller rant about unwritten rules being uh, a way to enforce control over you know force a player or team into playing suboptimally anyway because this came from Milwaukee now it's sort of seen as a, a referendum on hashtag bullpenning instead of a throwback to a strategy that's almost a hundred years old. And, you know, my big takeaway from this series, no matter who wins or loses, is this is going to be a referendum on uh, the reduction of, of the role of the starting pitcher and the expansion of the role of relief pitchers, particularly in the playoffs, even if that's not going to be what decides the series. Yeah, at the Brewers, I think, are at now 65% of their innings this postseason being pitched by the bullpen. And I see this Curly Ogden gambit just as of a piece with everything else they're doing. They're the underdog. They don't have great starters. They're going to do whatever they can to win. And just as I didn't think that using the opener or doing the bullpen game in the AL wildcard game was what caused the A's to lose. I mean, it, it didn't work brilliantly in that single game, but you can't conclude anything based on that single game. And I don't think they had a worse chance with Liam Hendricks on the mound in the first inning than they would have with Edwin Jackson or anyone else. So I don't think that we should, if the Brewers do end up losing this series, say, well, bullpenning doesn't work. I think they're only here because of bullpenning, which is separate from the question of whether bullpenning is good or fun or a positive from the spectator perspective. I've written a lot about that lately and I have my doubts, but I don't question the strategy itself. And I'm kind of curious because bullpenning is clearly catching on, not to the extent that the Brewers are doing it, but just the general rise of bullpens. That's a a league-wide long-term trend. I do wonder whether we'll see more teams doing what Council did in this game 
in the way that once the Rays tried the opener, everyone else wanted to try the opener. And Zach, in your piece about this decision, you envisioned this dystopian scenario in the future where every team is protecting the secret of who will start a game until the last possible second. And they all have two lineups ready to go based on who's starting. And that's why we don't see this, I think, is because once you do it once, no one ever knows whether you're about to do it again and they can do it to you. And so the net kind of uncertainty for everyone is unpleasant enough that no one wants to be the one who initiates all of that. But Craig Council did. I think there's a reason that the times this has happened are Game 7 of the World Series in 1924 when there was no next day. And here where there was a clear off day in Milwaukee wanted Wade Miley to start the next game anyway. If you're going to mm-hmm. do this in the regular season, like if the Astros wanted to try this and they said, Justin Verlander's going to start today and then they pulled him after a batter, then they're messing with their entire rotation. Conversely, if they announce that a reliever's going to do this, it's pretty obvious that something is up. So I think... I, I would see the Rays style of the opener where they just announce a reliever is going to pitch an inning and then go from there as potentially uh, getting a lot more widespread than this specific instance because I think the ogden Mogridge gambit requires a lot of specific contextual circumstances. Mm-hmm. However, what I'll be curious over the next year or so as, as the Rays either continue the opener or other teams take it up is whether teams adjust their lineups. Like if the Rays go into a series with the Angels again next year and use the opener uh, against a top three right-handed hitters, will the Angels adjust their lineup? Because this year we didn't see a lot of that. We just saw teams sticking with their order when Milwaukee in September tried this very similar thing. They used a left-handed reliever, Dan Jennings, to face the Cardinals. The Cardinals still had Matt Carpenter lead off and Dan Jennings pitched just to him, and then the game continued. I wonder if this kind of thing gets more widespread. If next year the Cardinals would say, all right, we'll move Matt Carpenter to third in the order, so if Milwaukee wants to try this, he has to get through two right-handed hitters first. That's sort of the first evolution we need to see before I think we get worried about that dystopian future, I imagined. This just strikes me as more trouble than it's worth in the regular season. When every out matters more, it's worth it to sort of try to wring every last bit of every last bit of value out of your team in, in the playoffs or maybe in the last couple of weeks of the season. And you talk, you know, you talked about Justin Verlander. You're never going to get buy-in to do this with everybody. Like, you know, it sounds like the Brewers were sort of giggling about this, like a football team that's about to run a trick play. But I can't imagine somebody like Verlander in a million years going for something like this. And that's, you know, that's it speaks well to, to Craig Council uh, fostering like, a, you know, an attitude of collaboration and creativity in, in the clubhouse um, to be able to even pitch something like this. So I just think whenever something new happens, the the baseball world reflexively recoils like, you know, like a baby smelling a lemon for the first time. It's. It's never as bad as as like the the very worst case, you know, hot take columnist paints it to be at the at the very first time. So I think, you know, we are seeing an evolution, but I don't think this is going to happen. You know, it'll probably happen. It'll take less than 94 years for this to happen again. But, you know, it won't happen tomorrow. I don't think it'll happen again for the rest of the playoffs. Um, One thing I want to ask you guys is, do you think this is going to give Dave Roberts something to think about? Or if the Brewers advance, is it going to give Alex Cora something to think about, knowing that that this club is in the, the Brewers' bag now? I think so. I, I, it has to be in the back of their minds, at least in the World Series. I don't know if this situation really arises in the rest of the championship series. But I don't know that you question your, your lineup every single time out. I think that game in particular... There was clearly some uncertainty there because Miley had never done this. He was on short rest, and it kind of made sense to do what they did in a way that it wouldn't in most games. And ultimately, I think you don't want to adjust your lineup so much that you end up beating yourself because if you put, say, your best hitters at the bottom of the lineup or something because you don't want to subject them to an opener in that case, then you're ensuring that they get fewer plate appearances. And maybe that comes back to bite you even more than losing the the platoon advantage for an at-bat would. So I don't know that there's all that much you can do. And ultimately, it, it kind of comes down to Craig Council can do all of these fancy tricks. And ultimately, it's like the, the Indiana Jones 
kind of, you know, if you have a, a gun, you win the fight, no matter how fancy the other guy's moves are. And in this case, Dave Roberts had Clayton Kershaw, and this was the really good Clayton Kershaw, kind of the, the third version of Kershaw we've seen in these playoffs. We saw the great Kershaw who had his best game score of any playoff start against the Braves, but we all kind of questioned, well, was he actually that good? Did the Braves get themselves out? He only got three strikeouts. Then we saw him have one of his worst playoff starts to start the series. And then we kind of saw the just right in the middle where he was really good and he missed lots of bats and he had the breaking ball working and threw tons of sliders and had his command. And we'll probably see more of this variability from Kershaw now because he doesn't have that fastball anymore. And so it really is dependent on how the breaking ball is spinning and whether he's locating it. But when he is, he can still be really, really good. And so I think he showed that if he's not the best pitcher in baseball anymore, he's still potentially an ace in in any given game. There was a a danger point near the beginning of the game in game five. They were tied 0-0 and then Lorenzo Cain hit an RBI double after Kershaw had once again failed to get Brandon Woodruff out. And there were (laughs) runners on second and third with one out and Kershaw was already down 1-0 and you could kind of sense the stadium was worried. Would Kershaw unravel again like he had in game one? But he struck out Christian Yelich, and after walking Ryan Braun, he struck out Jesus Aguilar. And that was the turning point. I don't think he allowed a single base runner after that inning, uh, going seven strong. And that kind of speaks to how Yelich has struggled in this series, not even being able to drive a run in. But that's where I think you sense Kershaw turning it around. And from then on, He was the same Kershaw we watched in, say, game one of the World Series last year when he outdueled Dallas Keuchel. It's really the the whole heart of the Brewers' order hasn't really shown up in this series. I mean, I don't think it means all that much. It's five games. It's small sample. Maybe it's good scouting. But Yelich hasn't hit a whole lot. Kane hasn't hit a whole lot. Braun, Moustakis, like all the Brewers' offense has come from the bottom of the order, from Brandon Woodruff, from the pitchers who collectively have been good, or Orlando Arcia, or Santana, I mean, Granderson even. These are the guys supplying the Brewers' offense such as it is. Right. I've, I've got the the number, just having to have the numbers up right now. And the two highest OPSs on, in the Brewer, are on the Brewers during this series are uh, Woodruff and Miley. Yeah. So, <laughs> like, you know, and it, we talk about, we talk about small samples a lot, and, you know, not wanting to draw sweeping conclusions, but there's a difference between uh, saying, well, Christian Yelich hasn't, hasn't hit, for five games, so he's not going to hit in the next two. And mm-hmm. looking back on it and saying, like, the difference in the series is Yelich has sucked butt. He is three for 20 this series. Travis Shaw is two for 12. They, they Between the two of them, they have one extra base hit. And those two guys carried them in the division series. And I don't, you know, the Brewers as a team have a 282 OBP. You're yeah. not going to win the series, no matter how well you pitch. I think the, the bullpen shenanigans have given them, you know, you talk about pitchers keeping you in the game. They've given them opportunities, but, you know, at some point you just have to produce some runs and they haven't. And it's worth noting the Dodgers are leading the series, but they've been out hit by the Brewers by more than 50 points of OPS at this point. The Dodgers are slugging 295 as a team in this series. So it's not as if they're clicking offensively either. This is the the best power hitting team in the league and has not hit for power. They've hit two home runs thus far in this series. The Brewers have hit five. So it's not really an offensive mismatch. It's more of a, a timing issue. Neither of these teams is is really hitting on all cylinders. That's what, uh, going back a day, I think made game four so fascinating was that game felt like it could go on forever without a run scoring. And mm-hmm. sure, yeah. the Dodgers might have run out of pitchers. They had Julio Urias as the last member of their bullpen, and who knows how many innings he is able to throw at this point. So maybe they would have run into trouble soon. But even though the teams were you know, getting some runners to first base, I don't think there was like a single solid hit with a runner in scoring position after you know between Brian Dozier hitting an RBI single in the first inning and Cody Bellinger hitting the game winner, it didn't feel like anyone ever had any success with a runner on base. So that's kind of epitomized the series so far where even though like the Brewers bullpen struggled in the first two games, but in LA they were good and they just lost an extra game. Uh, We can talk about Craig Council's decision to pitch to Bellinger at that point, but I wonder if he walks Bellinger, like that game might still be going on now. 
Yeah, I I remember just sort of being shocked that anyone scored. Like, I think a large part of me really expected Junior Garrett to just continue throw, to throw up zeros for the rest of the night because it really did. I mean, it felt like the wild card game where it was just, you know, like neither team was really getting anything going offensively. And, you know, you have to score to win in baseball. It's wow, that was a, a really great cliche <laughs> I just uh, laid down. But, you know, it, it's a weird place to be expecting Junior Garrett to just continue to, to throw up zeros at extra innings of a playoff game. Should we talk about that decision to pitch to Bellinger? Because I think it came in for some criticism after the fact, and, and justifiably so. So you had Bellinger up, and there was a runner on first, and then the runner on first advanced to second on one of the many wild pitches or passed balls we've seen in this postseason. And so you had first base open, and you could have put Bellinger on, which A, would have set up the force, B, would have brought up Yasmani Grandal, who is not really a significantly worse hitter overall than Bellinger, and, and you wouldn't have gotten the platoon advantage because Grandal's a, a switch hitter. I think Bellinger probably— well, a, a, I would say <laughs> Grandal's having one of those series that makes me believe in he the is. effect of small samples. But then again, you probably would have said that about Bellinger before this hit, right? I, I mean, would his... not. I would not have said that about <laughs> okay. Bellinger. Are you like— <laughs> Some people would have, I think, about his lack of clutchness in no, the postseason. I mean, there's but, a difference between being unclutched and being. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had, he had the big hit in game two. It's yeah. So uh, if it's, you yeah, if you want to factor in how bad there's Grandal not clutch, like, and then there's <laughs> there's what Grandal's been doing. So maybe that's an extra reason to put Bellinger on then. And, and Bellinger's a bit of a better hitter for average, which in that situation is all you care about because the runner on second is is everything. And then you had the further option if you didn't want to deal with either of those guys. You had Julio Urias up. Uh, after Grandal. So you could have, in theory, loaded the bases to face Urias, which is dangerous. Of course, you're always tempting fate when you load the bases and you can have a couple calls go against you or you can have another one of those wild pitches and pass balls and then it's all over. But there are advantages to either of those strategies. Yeah, Craig Council's explanation after the game was a bit confusing. He said, if Bellinger had walked, we probably would have walked Grandal too to load the bases. So hmm. that would have that would have brought Urias up. But he said we wanted to to try for Bellinger because we got two strikes on him. But at the time Machado advanced to second on the wild pitch, it was a one zero count. So right. that didn't entirely make sense to me. But then he also said, you know, we wanted to be careful with Bellinger, but. That full count pitch, which he eventually knocked for the game winning single, that was in the zone. And I think if you're yeah. going to be in a situation like that, it reminded me of the wild card game when I think in the bottom of the 12th, maybe Chris Bryant was well, up Bryant with, came up with, with two yeah. outs and nobody on, Terrence Gore on deck. And I was saying you should just walk Bryant to get to Gore. But what the Rockies did was they basically just threw a bunch of pitches out of the strike zone and let Bryant beat himself. I think that's what you have to do with Bellinger in that situation if you're going to pitch to him. Because if you yeah. walk him, it do- it's not a, a huge cost at all. But he grooved a, a hanging breaking ball down the middle and Bellinger was able to hit it for the game winner. Right. It's always dangerous, though, to just say, well, don't throw him a strike because pitchers aren't perfect. And Mm -hmm. sometimes they throw strikes by accident. And so if you really, really don't want to risk someone throwing him a strike in that situation, then you walk him because there there is some percentage chance that there will be a mistake that gets too much of the plate. And then that will happen. I'm I'm sort of constitutionally against giving managers a hard time for not walking people. Certainly mm-hmm. not, you know, this situation, maybe there are such situations where where you absolutely have to to walk the guy. I, I think it's defensible. I mean, they, you know, even if they didn't have two strikes on him at the time, they got two strikes on him eventually. And then you could just say Guerra just, met, you know, didn't execute. Um, I If if they had gotten a grand all, I would have pitched to him just because I, even with a pitcher up, I don't like walking the bases loaded with the, with the mm-hmm. walk off run at, at third because it's. You just you just have no room for error. We've seen, you know, we saw McCullers walk a run in uh, the other day. Just it just puts so much pressure on you to throw strikes, even against a, a pitcher. I probably wouldn't have done that, but I don't think it's like a you know, a, a mistake they're going to write books about. But you mm-hmm. know, I, I could see where where he was coming from pitching to Bellinger, but it was pro- probably would have been the smart decision to walk him. Um, do you guys want to? Clayton Kershaw is good in the playoffs now, right? Because that's the last thing he did. <laughs> it always swings based on the last thing he did. We'll we'll talk about this shortly with David Price, I'm sure. But with Kershaw now, he just 
he has such a, a big sample of playoff performance that if you want to spin things a certain way, you can find a, a whole lot of gems that he has thrown. He's uh, he's racked up quite a number of really impressive starts at this point, and this was another one of them. And, and I think the way he succeeded in this game was kind of the way he has to succeed now, and it still really works when he has all his stuff kind of under his command. Just wait, because I bet if Milwaukee wins game six, we'll see him in relief in game seven and can craft a whole new narrative based on what happens in that game. <laughs> so let's let's look forward briefly before we move on to, to the American League. Um, the two pitching matchups are going to be Miley versus Ryu, Chassin versus Bueller. Um, and with the caveat that I think the Dodgers are going to win the series by this point, at this point, just because they only need one and Milwaukee needs to win both. Like that, the math beyond that is so far... Uh, you know, it matters so much more than the, the relative quality of the two teams. I don't hate these pitching matchups for Milwaukee. I think both Miley and Chassin are, are doing a really good job of keeping the ball off the barrel. Um, you know, pitching in their defense, doing all that stuff that that uh, FIP made us all believe that pitchers had no control over 10 years ago. Um, I... I thought, Ch- you know, Chastain's start uh, in game three was, I think, every bit as impressive as, as Kershaw's was. He was outstanding and having that to fall back on in game seven having the bullpen come back relatively rested to sort of sprint to the finish in these last two games this these are not bad matchups for milwaukee yeah well it's easy to say that now because we've already seen the best case scenario for both of these guys in the series i mean they've both looked extremely impressive and we know that they're capable of that i think on paper, it's probably advantage Dodgers, but it's not an enormous advantage just based on the starting pitcher matchups. And something that I looked into, I think it was last October, people sometimes wonder whether there is a second time through the series effect, the way that there is a second time or third time through the order effect within a game. In other words, that when you've seen a starting pitcher already in a series, in a short playoff series, maybe you're better against him. I couldn't find any evidence that that's the case. Guys just do just as well the second time in a series as they do the first time. Not that it matters particularly here because this is the second time for everyone on both sides. So even if there were an advantage, no one team would have it. But just something interesting I found that that apparently is is not an actual phenomenon. I wonder also how the extra day off and in game five, Milwaukee didn't really use any of its key bullpen pieces. I wonder how much that you know allows Josh Hader to potentially pitch like three innings in game six and then potentially come out for another inning in game seven. Obviously, Council knows better than we do how much stress his best pitchers can handle, but I think they will be fully rested. The Dodgers had to use Kenley Jansen to secure the last out of game five, which meant he pitched again the day after going two innings for the first time in a while. Uh, so I think the Brewers are in slightly better footing there, but I wouldn't necessarily budge from my pre-series prediction of Dodgers and six just because, as Ben said, we already saw the best-case scenario for Miley. I mean, he and Chassin have collectively allowed zero runs in the playoffs so far. It's hard to get better than that, and I'm not... You know, I wrote a, a glowing piece about their performance thus far, and I don't think he will implode like the name Wade Miley might suggest he would. But I also don't know if he's able to twirl a complete shutout again. And the way, you know, how low scoring this series has been so far, even giving up a single run, that makes the Brewers bullpen look a lot less fearsome if they're not holding a lead, kind of like we talked about with the Yankees. And like Ryu has also been pitching really well. Yeah, the Dodgers have done a decent job of striking early enough sometimes that it takes the Brewers' bullpen out of the game a little bit. And Hader is is kind of like Poochie from The Simpsons at this point, where where he's when he's not on the screen, we're all supposed to be asking, where's Poochie? What's Poochie up to? When will we see him? And that is kind of where we are with Hader. It's just this automatic two or three innings of scoreless baseball, you assume, although he does allow runs from time to time. But it's just all about when are you going to deploy that weapon? When are you going to call for those scoreless few frames? And I'm sure that Council is not going to 
allow his team to be eliminated without using Hader, without using the big bullpen pieces. So we're going to see that, and I'm sure that he'll be aggressive with those guys. I mean, we haven't seen Hader go back-to-back days often during the regular season, but he has already done it here, and I'm sure he'll be willing and able to pitch in both of these games if necessary. I think we're, I don't know, I don't want to speak for you guys, but I this this feels like a Dodgers win one way or another, whether they get to... They get to Miley in game six or, or eke it out in game seven or, or, you know, the Brewers just don't score enough runs. You know, I, I just the only needing to win one is a gigantic advantage, even though, you know, even though I could see I could see the path for the Brewers, you know, I can I, I could see their way out. But this it doesn't get any more backs uh, backs against the wall than this. So if there's nothing else on the National League, I would like to uh, talk about Jackie Bradley Jr. I, I figured this was coming. Let's talk about the most clutch hitter in baseball, Jackie Bradley Jr., former College World Series, most outstanding player for the University of South Carolina, now the American League Championship Series MVP, nine two-out RBI in this series. The man's a difference. I think, you know, for all the talk about Mookie Betts being the, you know, being as good as Mike Trout, maybe winning the MVP this year. The Red Sox real MVP is Jackie Bradley Jr. And I would like to hear you guys, you know, I was going to say, hear your thoughts. But really, there's only one right answer. And that answer is Jackie Bradley Jr. Well, it is literally true that he was the Red Sox MVP in this series, so I cannot dispute that. And it's true. I I mean, I think he probably gets less attention than he should because he is flanked by two really good outfielders and guys who outhit him, at least lately. I I think you can make the case, as Jeff Sullivan did at Fangraphs this week, that this is one of the best outfields we've ever seen, at least in the advanced stat era. And Bradley's, well, he's literally the centerpiece of that. Betts is obviously the best player here, but I think Bradley... I don't think that's obvious anymore. (laughs) I think it's obvious, (laughs) but I think Bradley is a little underrated because he had that really good offensive season where he had 26 homers. This is 2016, and he sort of broke out, it looked like, as a hitter and then regressed a bit, and he's been fine as a really excellent defensive center fielder, but not an offensive star if you look at it, I think based on just the StatCast data, he's been just as good since 2016 as he was in 2016. Anyway, the point is he's one of the very best defensive outfielders in baseball, and he can hold his own at the plate. And you're right. He has been clutch. I don't know if he is clutch, but he has been. I think he is clutch. This is this is the one one time we know that a player is clutch. <laughs> it's almost too trite to say, but the Red Sox won this series because they got to the formidable Houston rotation. I think all three of us might have written this year about how phenomenal this Astros rotation was. And they had two Cy Young contenders in Verlander and Cole. They had a three-pitcher Dallas Keuchel. They had a four-guy Charlie Morton who could have been like one or twos on basically any team in baseball. But outside game one, when Verlander pitched well, but the Red Sox got him in game five, the Red Sox battered all of the starting pitchers they faced this series. And surprisingly, it wasn't because of the top of the order. If you combine the stats from the Yankees series and the Astros series, the two Red Sox regular starters with the worst OPSs are Mookie Betts and Andrew Benintendi. So it's not like last year with the Astros where the bottom of the order struggled, but Altuve and Springer and Correa were just so dominant that it didn't matter. This was really a much deeper lineup than I expected to see with Bradley contributing with tech Christian Vasquez and Brock Holt and, you know, Steve Pierce. And it reminded me of one of those old lineups where like one through nine, all the guys could hit. And that's not necessarily what I expected. Uh, Obviously that I made the wrong prediction. So that's why, but it's really impressive and makes me think that we, I don't know if we underestimated that specific aspect of this lineup, but they did lead the the majors in runs this year, so there must have been a reason why. They did essentially what I expected the Astros to do and what the Astros did in game one, which is just to keep the chain moving. And the Red Sox led the the league in runs, and that's that's one thing, but they they were kind of top heavy with Martinez and Betts and you know, and Betts and and uh Benintendi, like you said, had the the two lowest uh 
OPSs of any Red Sox hitters in the series. And the, you, know, you think of the big hits, Bradley, uh, Rafael Devers with that home run uh, in game five. I don't think it's them getting to the starters necessarily. I think it's just these are the two best teams in baseball, and it's just going to come down to who comes through in the in the big moments. And this is another thing where I'm not going to go back and, you know, or going forward, make any assertions about the clutchness of any player in this series, except for Jackie Bradley Jr., who is obviously and inveterately clutch. But you just look at, at who got the two out hits, who who came through with two strikes. That game four, it didn't necessarily turn on that review call, which, which we're going to talk about in a second. It turned on Josh James was dominant through two outs and two strikes pretty much any inning, and the Red Sox just wouldn't go away. And that's... I mean, you know, this is what I wrote about. It's it's kind of unsatisfying from an empirical perspective, but sometimes it just comes down to who gets the right hits or makes the right pitches in in what order. And we saw the Astros for all their bullpen depth, just they couldn't, you know, they they kept letting the game just bleed away, you know, give up that one or two extra runs that uh, put the game out of reach for them later on. You know, that, that was the difference in game four. It was the uh, difference to a certain extent in game two as well. And, you know, I don't come away from this thinking that, that the Astros are like, this is not a gentleman's sweep. This is, this was a much more even series than, than it would look like from the box scores and the, the way it played out. But you know, it, it just comes down to, to executing in big moments as, as hoary a cliche as that is. To that point about, about sequencing the two teams in their respective uh, batting stats for this series, the Red Sox had a 327 OBP. The Astros were actually at 337, but their slugging percentages are, are where this is interesting. The Red Sox were at 384 and the Astros were at 385. So strip away all the effects of like the two out hits, like Michael said, and this was a really even series, uh, which is why I think even though I watched it happen, I'm still a bit surprised it ended in five. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. It probably sounds like we're trying to justify our our predictions no, retroactively, yeah, but mean, believe me, I'm not nearly attached to any prediction I make about a postseason series to to attempt to justify it. I I assume that many of them will be wrong because that's the nature of postseason predictions, and I think the series is a good example of that. I mean, as Zach mentioned, the Astros outhit the Red Sox overall in this series. They just didn't outhit them at the times it mattered the most, and there were many moments that we'll probably talk about where things could have swung the other way and we would still be watching this series, right? I mean, you can obviously point pinpoint the fan interference call. You can talk about the Bregman hit or almost hit that Benintendi caught to end that game. You could talk about the one-two pitch to J.D. Martinez in game five that usually is a strike and was not a strike and Martinez hit a home run on the next pitch. I mean, these things happen and you credit the Red Sox for doing the damage, as their hashtag says, when it mattered. But it doesn't make me think that, oh, they actually were way better than the Astros all along. It makes me think that they were better than them or at least better timing, I guess, than the Astros in in five days. And I think that the curious thing and the thing that I certainly wouldn't have predicted is that the Red Sox middle relievers really came through again in this series. And Joe Sheehan had this stat that the Red Sox outscored the Astros 15 to three from innings six to eight in this series. Those are the innings when you would have thought that the Astros would have the advantage because they had such a deep bullpen that you could make the case that the players they left off their roster in the bullpen were about as good as the Red Sox bullpen that was actually on the roster. And yet you had Barnes and you had Brazier and you had Kelly. These guys combined for 12 innings and a 1.5 ERA in this series. If you replay this a million times, I don't know how often that happens, but we only care about this one time. And this time they were incredibly effective. I want to say before we get too far into this and and talk about the the weird stuff, I want to say congratulations to Bill Simmons on pulling off a legendary reverse jinx. (laughs) Uh, He is the only, like as certain as we all sounded that the Astros were going to win this series easily. He's the only person who sounded even more certain than us. Um, You know, there, there are times when, you know, you remember why he's Bill Simmons and being able to pull off a a reverse (laughs) jinx like that, not something everybody could do. Um, This series was, it was just chock full of, of, of weird shit. And I, from, from the spy game thing to the replay, um, to Craig Kimbrell, maybe tipping, maybe tipping his pitches. I don't even know where to start because it doesn't feel 
like it didn't feel chaotic, but it, there was just always this buzz of of strangeness in the background. So I guess let's let's go in order, I guess, and, and go to the man named Kyle. Uh, <laughs> what do we make of of this? And now there's all all of a sudden allegations league wide about every team is, is stealing signs using electronic surveillance and stuff. And I just sort of find this whole thing kind of ridiculous. Yeah, uh, you know, in the the sense that it's something that I would want to ridicule, and I'm you know curious if if I'm just sort of jaded. No, I that. I feel the same way. I mean, I've always been kind of confused about the purported effectiveness of sign stealing. It seems like a really difficult thing to leverage, even if you are doing it well. And the way that it usually happens in baseball is just so kind of. Keystone Cops and Amateur Hour. It's just always like a guy named Kyle on the field just standing there looking into the dugout. Like that's the the high-tech Astros solution here is just aiming a camera into the other dugout. It doesn't really make sense. And there's so much paranoia now and you see all these teams going through these extreme routines. It's like the catchers are going through third base coach kind of routines behind the plate instead of just putting a finger down in the time-honored tradition. And... I I don't know. It seems like MLB is very eager to just sweep this under the rug and say, nothing to see here. Pay attention to our great postseason and these wonderful teams that are completely (laughs) competing on the level. Yeah, that too. But, you know, they said, oh, well, we investigated it and it's, uh, it's handled. Just move along. And I doubt that's the case. I think there are teams that are still up in arms about the way this was handled. But frankly, I have no idea whether the Astros actually derived benefit from this. It's it's curious because of what we talked about after the ALDS, where the Indians were saying, oh, they seemed so much better prepared. It's like they knew something. It does take on a different tenor. Now, <laughs> right. Now it's, oh, whoa, maybe it was Kyle McLaughlin all along. But I don't know. I, I think with these kind of conspiracies, we, we probably pay more attention to them than they deserve, but the players certainly seem convinced that something matters here, and they always have been. Well, the other the other theory I heard was that they wanted film on a on Red Sox pitchers from a different angle. But even then, that seems like an even longer, you know, something that would would give them an even longer term benefit, or, you know, or it would take longer to pay off. Is, is what I mean. And so mm-hmm. I just I don't really know what this gets you. It feels just very peripheral, and we've all seen like spy movies you never want to you know acting on the information lets you let your opponent know that you've cracked their signals and so just by by that logic it would be tough to to derive any sort of benefit and you know Kimbrel was i think it was Alex Cora who said this that that Kimbrel was supposedly tipping his pitches like the whole point of Craig Kimbrel is you can't hit him even if you know what's coming so and the problem certainly didn't seem to me that the Astros were or the Yankees in the series before were waiting on the curveball and teeing off. The problem was that Kimbrell couldn't put the ball within two feet of the strike zone at certain points. Yeah. So you know, I think this is, I don't know, it just feels like an externality that people are, are grabbing onto because it feels like something that you can control or like it or an excuse to, uh, or a way to excuse just the randomness of baseball. I don't know. It's super weird. The biggest thing I get out of it is enjoyment at, at how these, all these very smart, very organized people come up with such like bootleg ways to try to get around the rules. Like it's just so ridiculous. And it, you know, it's like watching succession. Like it's so harebrained. You'd expect these people to, to be smarter or cleverer than this. And it's just, it's, it's a little weird to find out that they're not. Well, the initial part of this is, is absurd. I think the secondary part was absurd too, where the Astros said, oh, we we were only doing this to make oh, yeah. sure the oh, Red Sox weren't doing it on us, which is like- <laughs> It's the, the Chris Correa defense. Well, it's the Chris <laughs> Correa defense, but also like the excuse you make in like high school if a teacher catches you looking at someone else's test. It's like, no, I was making sure they weren't copying my answers. And Major League Baseball apparently- Did you use that excuse in high school? I, I did not. I, I did not <laughs> cheat on my on test. Him. Yes. <laughs> but- I was going to say, I never did that in high school. (laughs) But Major League Baseball apparently bought that. I don't know. Maybe it's true. But either that speaks to just the extreme paranoia that has infected the playoffs at this point, or it speaks to like this broader problem with transparency that MLB has with other issues. So I think that's why spinning forward, like it did become a bigger thing than perhaps just something worthy of ridicule is because that next step was not really satisfying to anyone from any side. 
Yeah, I think it's time to take a cue from college baseball and bring in headsets. Oh, man. (laughs) Just teed you up for that one. Well, I'm just, I'm wondering why you did that, because we did like an entire episode We did talk about that, yeah. (laughs) I forget if it was this show or Effectively Wild where I hopped on to to talk about it, Mm -hmm. but I mean, we've we've done our whole thing about. (laughs) Yeah, but Catchers ought to call their own games. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's that's where I stand. Um, That brings us to replay. Um, I'm out on replay. Not because of this play. I just think the whole enterprise is sort of horseshit at this point. I don't know. It's all legalism and and so forth. Uh, but I guess more more to the point, um, was this a home run? What do you think? The Mookie Betts uh, fan interference calling game four. I think anyone who is certain about this is probably too certain because we just really do not have the means to make a definitive decision here. But I think the replay not overturning the call is perfectly defensible. I don't think there was strong enough evidence either way to do that. The initial call, I think, was I'm skeptical that Joe West had a definitive angle on this from where he is. And to me, it just seems like if you're going to make that call, you really have to be sure. And maybe I'm underestimating the angle that he had there, but he was pretty far away at kind of an acute angle while jogging. I just don't know that he could see this either. I I think it's it's very plausible that he made the right call. But to me, the threshold for certainty that you have to have to make that kind of call, which we so rarely see at an important moment for this, I kind of doubt that that could be cleared in this case. I say this fully acknowledging that if this had happened in a game where I had a strong rooting interest, I would have torn my hair out. But can Mm -hmm. we all agree by far the best part of this was the fact that they had a camera perfectly positioned to see the boundary, (laughs) but it was blocked (laughs) by a security guard who was interested in the play too. Like, Uh I think if you are... Uh, I guess like Michael. I don't, Sp- I don't know that that's better than the the guy's <laughs> Reagan Bush eighty four. <laughs> <laughs> but if you are like Michael, sort of fed up with this whole replay business, and I think this was maybe the most NFL ish replay scenario we've had in a key moment that's since a good way it was instituted. It. But I think if you're fed up with that, that image, uh, that screenshot of the security guard peering over the fence is sort of the perfect epitome of of why. It's mm-hmm. it's like. Just such a, a perfect still photo for like unpredictable bureaucratic incompetence. It's hysterical. Um, man, I I think it was over the fence. I think Betts would have gotten to it uh, if there hadn't been any fans there. But if it's over the fence, then they can do whatever they want to them essentially. Right. And and that's uh, that's something I think that's getting it's getting lost is like by the literal definition of of fan interference did a fan interfere with Mookie Betts on the on the play certainly but the the point is if he if if he goes into the stands then he doesn't have the right to the ball to get to the ball unencumbered anymore mm-hmm. yeah and that's where I feel like a lot of the outrage comes from is, is yeah. maybe a lack of understanding of the rule because you know the most outraged person who, who wrote back to me on Twitter after my game four column was like do you you know he can't go into the stands without getting beat up and I'm like well, no, that's, not, that's, <laughs> no, that's right. not the way the rule's written. Yeah, I, so. I don't know if he catches that ball in any version of reality, right? Like whether he's interfered with over the fence or oh, not. I think, I think if if there's nobody there, if it's like well, the, if there's the nobody there, five, but it's it's a baseball game. There, there, right. there are people there. <laughs> there's no space there. I mean, in some ballparks, there aren't fans who are right up to the edge of the wall, and maybe that's the way things should be. But in this case, the fans were right there, and. I think that his glove runs into a body at some point before the ball is in there, regardless. Even if no one reaches over the fence, even if they don't touch him until he's in the stands, he had to go past that barrier, mm-hmm. I think, to catch the ball. And and he did I the, think. The, I'm the, not sure. I'm not 100%. I'm not 100%. No, I, I don't think anyone can be 100% about this. But that's my thought about this, that he did a great job getting there and he timed the leap perfectly. And even so... I'm not sure that he could have caught it because of where the ball was and where the fans were. And even if they had stayed within the boundaries of what they're allowed to do, I think they might still have legally interfered with him in a way that would have prevented him from catching it. But will someone speak for replay? Can I speak on replay's behalf just quickly? If you must. I I think we focus on these edge cases and these weird calls 
And it's true that they're frustrating. And sometimes they're even worse than what would would have happened without replay. And everyone hates those pop-up slides where someone really was on the bag and physics and momentum just took him off for an instant and it never would have been called in the past. We, First of all, you can legislate those things to some extent out of being a problem. I think there ought to be a bullshit, no bullshit rule that yeah. um, umpires ought to have a subjective right. uh, ability to to say, this is not what this is for. Yeah. yeah. And and we've seen some corrections to that. Like in the first year of replay, when there were all those BS calls about like a, a guy who caught a ball and was really just transferring it and it was ruled not a catch because, you know, we quickly adjusted the rules so that that wasn't a problem anymore. But I think if we all went back in time to a pre-replay era and the first time there was an egregious call that everyone could see was wrong on the replay and we realized, wait, there's no recourse here. <laughs> we can't appeal this. We just have to be okay with the fact that this call was wrong. I just don't think that we would be okay with that. I think we're underestimating how important it is that most of the calls are correct and a higher percentage of the calls are correct than they used to be. It's funny. I I just saw a clip of the Derek Jeter flip play in 2001 Great play, obviously, but today that would be reviewed for five minutes to see whether Jeremy Giambi actually touched the plate or not. And I don't know whether he did, but I'm And just, this is your argument for replay. Yeah, because I'm putting myself in the situation of an A's fan there in 2001 who just has to put up with the call in the field because that's the call and there's just no one to appeal to. Whereas today you have a chance at least to undo that wrong. And I think that... There are so many cases where a call is clearly wrong. We all know it out here watching at home, and it's just an untenable situation in the slow-mo HD era to have the umpires and the officials with that much less information than we all have and then people that people in the ballpark have. So I don't think we can go back. I don't think we should go back. I think we should just focus on trying to eradicate these few frustrating situations that crop up. You see, I think it's so much more frustrating like there's this is sort of like my anti DH argument. Um, yes, you know pitchers don't get on base as much as uh, as hitters do, but the amount of joy derived from watching something like the Brandon Woodruff home run, or even you know watching him uh, get on base against Kershaw in Game Five, is so much greater than anything a DH could possibly do. That I would rather watch that style of baseball. It, it's sort of the flip side of that coin, where getting like. Going to replay, spending the four or five minutes watching it slow-mo, frame-by-frame, in high definition, and then winding up with sort of an unsatisfying or ambiguous or um, or flat-out wrong, in some cases, conclusion, that's so much worse than just, like, everybody sort of understands that this is a tough game to call in real time, you know, high-speed you know, the umpires are human and you sort of accept that as the vicissitudes of fate. And this feels like a failure of an interventionist system. And that's so much worse than just like, you know, it's like, you know, contracting MRSA in a hospital. That's like, it's just, you go to some place to, to get something fixed and that ends up being what, what kills you. That's just so much worse to me. (laughs) I don't think anyone really at it's their core. It's not really like getting mercy. No, in no, a no, no. I, like, I don't think anyone really accepts that. Oh, it's uh, the human element, and the calls go against you sometimes. I think that drives everyone equally crazy. And you know, you could ask what Cardinals fans in the '85 World Series if they're okay with the fact that replay wasn't admissible. I, I think it causes problems either way. And frankly, I think there are fewer problems this way even though the remaining problems are frustrating in a a new and kind of equally infuriating way. But I I don't know. I think if we went back, I think you're underestimating the benefits of replay. Look on the bright side. Lots of calls are corrected. Well, let me put it this way. I I think if we do have replay, like if we went back to the state of nature and then rebuilt (laughs) replay from the the ground up, I think we'd end up with, we'd not only appreciate it more, but we'd end up with a better system. Like the the system now is just kept in place by inertia and it's imperfect and and just by inertia, certain elements of it aren't going to change. Whereas we come up with something better if we built it from the ground up. Mm -hmm. Um, Time will tell how replay evolves. And indeed, time will also tell whether I regret using those terms to frame this discussion. Um, 
My only strong opinion on replay is that Jeremy Giambi should have slid, and then he would have been safe anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> how much? How much less of a controversy is this if Joe West is not the umpire involved? <laughs> yeah, much, much. I, that's the thing. He and Angel Hernandez; these guys are flashpoints. Where when we see them and hear their names, we just assume that they did something horrible, even if they didn't. <laughs> so they're kind of convicted in the the court of public opinion, no matter what. And to be fair, they have probably earned that reputation in a lot of ways. Why Reagan Bush 84? Because <laughs> he's not the first guy I've seen wearing a hat or a t-shirt like that. Um, what anyway. a podcast for Michael. <laughs> I've had a lot Showing of coffee. I today. had a lot of coffee and I sang Dragon Force right at the top. Um, <laughs> David Price is good. We promise we talk about this. I, this is the last uh, thing I want to hit from this series before we look forward. David Price uh, last night threw 39 changeups in 93 pitches, which is yes, 42%. He had never in his major league career thrown such a high percentage of changeups in a game before. And I think, you know, the way a changeup is supposed to work is it neutralizes opposite hand hitters. And that's obviously what he needed to do against the Astros right handed heavy lineup. And it worked, I think, against the top four Altuve, Springer, Bregman and Correa. Uh, he allowed just one hit in 11 at-bats and struck out six. And it's kind of reductive to simplify it just to that because there was so much more going on. He was pitching on short rest. He had warmed up a bunch the day before uh, in the ninth inning and said that might have helped him. You know, he received offensive support against Justin Verlander thanks to the Crawford boxes. But not much. I well, mean, he pitched most of that only with a, a one-run lead. Right, mm-hmm. but... It, you know, it's reductive perhaps to say that, but I think that was definitely the key to his start. And I think he got 12 whiffs on 39 pitches. That's a, a really high percentage. Yeah. And look, his postseason ERA career is still more than five. So if you want to say that he has been less successful in the postseason, that is undeniable. However, if you want to say that he's incapable of pitching in the postseason, that he has some reduction in ability, I don't see how you can continue to believe that or make that case after this start. This was a pennant-clitching start on the road in Houston, going up against Justin Verlander and the best-hitting team in the world against left-handed pitchers. I mean, this was as unfavorable a matchup on as short you can rest, it bears concoct. Yeah, that too. And he was nails. He was great. So you can't... That's the thing. If you get to the major leagues and you pitch in the postseason and you have the career that David Price has had, you don't have some inherent weakness in you that prevents you from pitching in the postseason. You may pitch poorly in the postseason, but it's not because you're not capable of pitching well or because there's some inherent weakness in your character. And that's the latest example. David Price was great in this game. I want to say he answered all the questions, except if he has a lousy World Series start, Mm -hmm. they'll be right back. So I don't think this cements a better reputation for him necessarily. But I just wish that there were more nuance in how people looked at this. We can say that someone has been worse in the big moments, but we shouldn't say that they are worse, that they are doomed to be worse, that there's something about them that makes them worse. Because even someone who has been worse on the whole has these moments of brilliance that tell you he's not psyched out by this situation. He had a great game. The smile on his face at the end of that game, just like mm-hmm. the the look, the expression of relief was was really. I I love watching moments like this where where players finally get over a hump. Where you could like even if they even if they don't tell on some level, that's gotta bother you. Even if uh, you know setting aside the external criticism, you know these are competitive people who want to come through in big moments. And on some level, you know you have to wonder if you've got it yourself or feel like you're letting down the team. Um, so I'm very happy for him that that he's got that monkey off his back to a certain extent, at least. Um, so yeah, that uh, Im- that image you talk about reminded me of every time Kershaw makes a playoff start. Now I think of him raising his arms in triumph after striking out Wilmer Defoe to end the yeah. 2016 yeah. LDS. And sure, it was Wilmer Defoe, but you could just sense the relief that he he had at least yeah. one playoff moment. We're gonna do a, so. We're gonna do a whole podcast previewing uh, the World Series once we know who's actually gonna play in it, and that'll come out on Monday. Um, but Before we go, any thoughts going forward? Any last thoughts about the Astros? Because this will be the last time we talk about them for a while. They'll be back. (laughs) We'll be seeing them again, I think. I mean, they're a powerhouse. And 
you can look ahead a couple of years and the core maybe starts to fragment at that point and maybe they get vulnerable, but honestly, probably not. Because in addition to having, I think, the best talent at the big league level, they also have one of the best couple farm systems in baseball, which just seems unfair. I mean, look at Josh James in that series. I, I know ultimately he got touched up, but he looked great at times and they're going to have him for a whole season. I don't think anyone in the AL West can mount a, a serious challenge next year, although that's what we said this year and, and some teams kind of did. But they're great and they'll be back. And I just don't see any way around that. And, you know, I, I kind of... I wasn't rooting for the Astros. I think there are a lot of ways in which I'm much less sympathetic to the Astros than I was when they were on the way up and they were getting criticized by the old school people. It's like now the new school has turned on the Astros because it turns out that a lot of the criticisms maybe about their soullessness that people were levying against them years ago, at the time it just seemed like reactionary and afraid of change. And now it's like, well, you know, maybe they're good. Obviously That's what the they did worked. That's the story of the post-Moneyball era. Right, is. yeah. <laughs> I think we've all come to accept that we were aligning ourselves with them kind of intellectually, but spiritually, I'm not sure that we want to be on that team. But regardless, they've built a, a great baseball team and, and we'll be seeing them again next year at this time, I'm sure. Zach, how's your soul? How's your spirit? <laughs> I'm just pulling up the the prospect rankings and I see that Kyle Tucker, their outfielder, is the third best outfield prospect in baseball. Forrest Whitley, a right-handed pitcher, is rated, at least by fan graphs, as the best pitching prospect in baseball. So uh, I think you mentioned their core might start fragmenting, but not for a couple years after this year. Yeah. Uh, as you wrote in your piece last night, basically they're only losing peripheral members, their catchers, maybe Marwin Gonzalez, although well, I bet they, they want to lose Keuchel. Keuchel well, yeah. Yeah, I bet it. they want to resign Gonzalez. On the pitching side, yes, they lose Keuchel and possibly Charlie Morton, but then they have Josh James, they have Forrest Whitley, they could just sign another one. So I think starting with the core they have of all those position players and at least for one more season, Verlander and Cole, I certainly, you know, it's early, but I certainly would pick them to come, you know, back to the playoffs, win the AOS again, et cetera. All right. Well, we're going to be back on Monday to preview the World Series. Uh, we'll have more written content uh, written over the weekend and, and published early next week. So we'll have more World Series preview content than, than you can handle. But until then, uh, thanks to Ben and Zach for joining me today. Yeah, it's a fun one. This was a fun one. Thank you. And to Bobby Wagner for producing today's episode. Thank you to Jackie Bradley and Clayton Kershaw and Joe West for giving us stuff to talk about. And thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time.